0: No. She didn't know. Right? Uh, She didn't know those things. I think of Luke chapter 2, I think it's verse 19, right around there, the uh, end of the nativity story there. And it says of Mary, what did she do? She pondered all these things in her heart, right? Um, What was going through her mind? That's one of those things where when you get to heaven and you see. I want to have discussions with people, right? You probably have those Bible characters in mind. And as I was reading through that, that part of Scripture recently, I thought, I can't wait to, you know, talk to Mary and say, what was going through your mind, you know? Of course, most of those things she didn't even know to, to ask, you know. Will my son walk on water? You know, why would she even think that that might happen? I think the most profound statement in that, that song is the the son that she delivered would soon deliver her, you know, uh, a very uh, insightful way of stating it. You know, uh, she's thinking, wow, what a wonderful, you know, mother. It's like, and it's a great work. You know, can't minimize uh, pregnancy and labor and childbirth and that delivering and what a delivering that child into the into the world. But what a greater deliverance that Jesus is going to give to Mary. Because Mary was a sinner. She needed a Savior, right? And she needed delivered from her sin. And uh, she, she would have her son be her Savior. Wow, what, a, what wonderful truths for us to ponder this morning uh, as we think about our Savior. Isn't God just so amazing? I mean, it's just been a great season. I um, just enjoyed uh, focusing on the Lord this Christmas season. And uh, so thankful to be his child, so thankful to have Jesus as my Savior. Well, when it comes to kings and rulers and politics, the world's quite a mess, isn't it? But it's always been that way. I mean, if you study history uh, from the earliest forms of human government, uh, there has always been problems. I I heard a conservative talk show host once say, and I don't remember who it was, and he was probably quoting someone else, and he said, you know, democracy is still the worst form of government except for all the others, okay? And I thought, that's kind of cynical, but there's really truth to that, right? And yet... uh, You know, we can think about different forms of government, and a a lot of changes in governments and rules have been reactionary. Uh, We think about, I remember studying, like, uh, Russian history and the czars, and there was just so much unhappiness with the way uh, things were going there, and you have things about the Bolshevik Revolution, and then it's like, well, we need to improve things. I know, let's bring in communism. Wow, now look how good things are, Right? And, uh, you know, things seem to go from bad to worse. The best ideas of man seem to just uh, be so disastrous sometimes. And you may find yourself, you know, it, is there solutions? I know, let's go to the Bible. It, at least if we're talking about God's people, you know, then we ought to have, you know, better situations. Well, if you read through First and Second Kings, you find out that, There wasn't a decent king in the northern tribes of Israel, okay? And you have some some kings that were more wicked than some of the pagan kings. But even in Judah, you know, and and before the split, let's go back, you know, and let's skip over King Saul. He was very disappointing, but it's like king number two was king who? King David. Wow, now, okay, here we go. Now we're talking, right? A man after what? God's own heart. That's the kind of king we need. So we can set him up as the poster child of what a king ought to be. Oh, how disappointing. Here's a king that plots the death of Uriah the Hittite because he's covering up his own adulterous affair with his wife. And then David, knowing better, Breaks God's law and, and creates a census of the people. He numbers the people. And as a result of doing it, 70,000 people of his subjects that he is, really has a sworn duty to protect and serve, really he becomes guilty of their blood because of his own sin. What a disappointment. And he's King David was championed as one of the the greater kings right well maybe he just wasn't smart enough maybe he needs some some added wisdom ah here comes solomon right now we've got it made wisest man that ever lived how humble god says i'll give you whatever you whatever you ask for you know wow you're not asking for riches you're not asking for reputation you're asking for what Oh, you're asking for wisdom, that you might be able to rule this great people. Okay, I will give you that wisdom. Got it made in the shade, right? How can he mess up? Well, 300 wives, 700 concubines. Most of them are are called strange women. They come from foreign pagan families. And it pulls the heart of Solomon away. He becomes quite full of himself, he begins to pursue happiness and fulfillment and all the wrong directions, and you read Ecclesiastes, and basically it's it's us, him telling us, don't make the same mistakes I did, you know, don't look for happiness in all the wrong places, you'll find out it's very empty, it's vanity of vanities. And he really was quite oppressive to his people, between the tribute and taxation and the uh, bringing into his uh, workforce servants, uh, conscripting an army, all this. So when Solomon's passing off the scene and now it's turned for his son, certainly by the third generation we could get this figured out, right? So Rehoboam comes and, and everybody's like, you need some counselors. And so the wise older man says, you know, your father Solomon, he kind of blew it. He really put such a yoke on us with his high demands. What did Rehoboam do? He listened to the wrong counselor. He says, I'm you think my dad was tough, I'm going to be even tougher. You know, I'm going to be even tougher. And so he was. And and through him there was the split of the kingdom. And on we could go, right? So what are we saying? Even in God's people, in the people that God appoints. I mean these were the ones that God wanted to be ruling. That doesn't mean that God condones their bad ruling, their bad choices. Understand that. We need to carry that through in all our application of life. Just because it's God's will that something happens doesn't mean that God is blessing the repercussions of man's sinful actions. When it comes to rulers, some are better than others. We understand that. But one thing is true when it comes to human rulers. Eventually there will be disappointments. Just mark it down. There is no perfect leader. But there is a king that rules in complete righteousness. And it is for him, King Jesus, that really we as Christians yearn. Hopefully as you're reading through your Bibles and you come across these stories in the Old Testament and somewhere like that, i think that that's part of why the holy spirit gives us that is so we'll we'll see the disappointments like even so lord jesus come quickly right that's what we ought to be doing that's the right response to that and identifying with jesus as our king will rightly impact all that we do that's what i hope us to see is that it's not just well that's nice jesus is going to come and rule someday and You know, I know he's got a throne in heaven and everything, but this really impacts how we live every single day of our life, that Jesus is king. And that's why I chose this particular text. There are some other texts that we're going to look at, but I think that Paul rightly brings into a conversation with young Timothy the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it's going to impact how Timothy conducts his life as a minister or even just as a good Christian, let's say. He's exhorting him as a pastor. He is, Timothy is a pastor we know in the town of Ephesus. But Timothy was more than just a pastor. We would say maybe he was Paul's protege. Paul took a special interest in Timothy and mentoring him called him his son, right? And that meant his son in the faith. And so in verse 12 of this chapter, he starts off, and we, we started at verse 13, but notice in your text there, he says to him, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And, and our, our life and faith is a fight. But it's a, it's a worthy one. It's something that we ought to hold on to. Now, this seems to be connected to the very specific commandment down in verse 14. That thou keep this commandment. What commandment? Oh, the commandment to fight the good fight of faith. And he develops that. We won't spend a a lot of time uh, developing that, but the whole chapter talks about what's involved in that fight of faith. And, and let's just say, for Timothy in the town of Ephesus as a pastor, the specifics of what he would be involved with in that fight of faith was, is going to look a little different than your fight of faith and my fight of faith. But let's, let's make sure we all understand this. We're all in a fight, and it's all regarding our faith, and it is worthwhile. Okay. Sometimes you get a little tired of fighting, but the white flag... Throwing in the towel is never an option. We need to understand that. So what do we need? We need a little bit of of encouragement. We need a little bit of uh, motivation. And the word of God gives it to us. That's what Paul's doing here for Timothy. And so he says in verse 13, I give thee charge. You hear the forcefulness of, of what Paul's saying here? He's talked about a commandment. He's given him an imperative, fight the good fight, and now he puts it in the form of a charge. So he's obviously trying to give motivation, and and ultimately it's not just rooted in, now look at me, Timothy, you know, you're my protege, I'm trying to set a good example here. Paul always takes Timothy, and like he should, he points him to the person of Jesus Christ. And that's who he says that it needs to be. I give you charge before Christ Jesus. And so we need to realize as we read our Bibles and feel like, wow, I'm feeling like God is really admonishing me in my quiet time today. Or I read a devotional and I got some truth for it. Realize that you're getting charged. And that charge is, you need to sense it coming from the person of Jesus Christ, don't you? And so he goes on to talk about Jesus. He doesn't just leave it there, but he he goes particularly to an event in the life of Jesus. And suddenly we find ourselves standing in the court of Pontius Pilate in our mind's eye. That's where he takes us to. Out of all the scenes in the life of Jesus interestingly enough right i mean he could have, it could have been the the time he really embarrasses the pharisees you know by by you know they come at him and you know hey let me tell you about this this woman and she's had these husbands and they thought that they had him you know she's not whose husband and then he totally embarrasses them it's like hey there's not even marriage in heaven you know why, why not go to that one you know i love that story where he just you know takes them down a notch right but the holy spirit led paul to use this scene and how jesus handles himself before pontius pilate and paul says about this scene that what jesus did was he gave a good confession well let me think for a second what did jesus confess there before pontius pilate well we better turn to that passage right let's go to matthew chapter 27 and verse 11 together and interestingly enough you know anything about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that there's sometimes events of Jesus' life that are in one book, but maybe not in another, and it might be in two, or it might be in three, and then every once in a while, not often, you get it in all four Gospels, and that's true of this particular event. This occurs in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's, it's very interesting. We won't look at all of those. We'll look at Matthew. And then I'll make a reference also to John because John will bring out something that the other three, what we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call those synoptic gospels because they're very similar in one another. And John often shares some really interesting tidbits that the other three do not. And that will be the case today as well. So in Matthew chapter 27... And verse 11, kind of drop us into the middle of the scene here. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the, what? King of the Jews. Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. Now, Pilate's no idiot. He knows officially there is a king in Judea that's not Jesus of Nazareth. And that's Herod, okay? We understand that. But notice how Jesus responds to Pilate. So Pilate obviously wanted to know, I want to hear what Jesus is going to say to this. Because obviously a lot of people are trying to make Jesus to be king. Do you, do you see yourself? That's where the insurrection, that's why we're having all this you know, turmoil. And that's what the Romans wanted more than anything else, was to keep the peace. In Latin they called it the Pax Romana. And that was the Roman peace. In other words, let's, let's get along. You know, let's defuse situations. And so Pilate's trying to do that. You know, whatever I can do to kind of squelch this. I don't want the emperor unhappy that there's this little skirmish going on over here and that the Jews are stirring things up again. But but Jesus says to Pilate, thou sayest. That is, according to a Hebrew idiom that's how Jesus is is talking here in other words we we would understand it as it is as thou sayest is what he's saying to him you know now Pilate asked him a question but he's touching on the topic of the kingship of Jesus with regard to the Jews and Jesus is really in his own manner of speaking affirming that statement yes what you said that is true but in John chapter 18, and I'll flip over there with me if you would, I'll give you a, a couple of minutes here to, to find this spot in your Bibles. John chapter 18 and verse 34, so towards the end of that chapter. And if you look at 33, you see Pilate entering the judgment hall, and he's talking to, and he asked the question, "Art thou the king of the Jews?" But, but John records something else that was also obviously said. Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this, this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Interesting. He doesn't, at this point, answer his question directly. He starts analyzing Pilate, right? It kind of turns the tables here. You almost expect Pilate to say, hey, who's interrogating who here, right? So what's going on here when he says this? One commentator put it this way. It's like, dost thou ask this question of thine own accord because you think that I have affected regal power? In other words, have you been observing my life personally? Are you aware of my miracles, of my signs, my wonders? And you think, This guy's got to be of a king, you know. There's something unique about him. Or, dost thou ask it according to the information of the priest? Because the priest and Pilate had a connection. Because Pilate was smart enough to know, if I keep the priest happy, they'll keep the people calm. You know, because the people listen to the priest. They resent me as a Roman. So often the, the priests were in cahoots. You know, which is why the priests could come to the Romans and say, We want to crucify this man. And they were able to convince the Roman officials to do that. But Jesus undoubtedly knew what had happened. He didn't, it's not like Jesus didn't know the answer to this question. Now, Pilate, why are you asking me this? Jesus knows all things because he's not only man, he's what? He's God, right? He's God. So, is he trying to figure out? No, how? How do you, what do you know about me, and how do you know it? He already knows this. God's great at asking us questions for our benefit, not for his. And so he's doing this little bit of probing. And he wants to make, the, make Pilate think. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? You know, do you think that I'm acquainted with religious opinions, expectations, the disputes of the Jews? Well... He wasn't a Jew, but, you know, if he was a good governor, he was very aware of what was going on. You know, that was, you know, there was be someone standing next to his breakfast platter informing him of what the the highlights of the day were going to be. You know, who are the renegades? What do we need to know about? Where do I need to send out patrols? What do I need to be uh, watching out for? Jesus goes on to answer, my kingdom is not of this world, in verse 36 of John chapter 18. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that the world was out of his jurisdiction. You know, sorry, you know, I'm here in this world, but I have no control over this world. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That can't be. But what he is saying was that his rule was greater than the world. I'm not limited just to a world government. And that has to be true because if it was, if Jesus could only be king of the world, then Jesus would be less than God. He's not just king of the world, but we would say he's king of the universe. He's king of creation. He's not just a temporal king. He's an eternal king. And although Jesus is above and beyond our finite world in his reign as king, there is coming a time that he will return to earth. And very particularly, he will rule this world. That's what, if we go back to our passage in 1 Timothy 6 now, and verse 14, we'll understand what Paul means when he talks about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus already appeared once when he was born as a baby. But this is talking about, because it's future, until the appearing, right? So what's that? That's what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ. And at that time, it says he will show or we would say, demonstrate something to all humanity. And what is it that he's going to demonstrate? That he is king of kings. Not that he will be king of kings. He is king of kings. Folks, do you understand that right now Jesus is king of kings? And that from the beginning of time, he was king of kings. Now, at present, we see a great deal of governmental upheaval in the earth. So I think it's very fitting that we kind of focus on this today. Sometimes as Christians, I, I think that we need to retool the way we look at the news and voting and politics. And not that we don't vote. I think if we understand our duty as citizens in this country, we definitely need to be good stewards of that. For the same point. Things happen that are outside of our control, even if we know it's wicked, it's wrong. Okay, does that mean that God's not in charge anymore? Is he not still president of presidents? Can we put it that way? So there is coming that day. And yes, we look forward to that. Oh, I can't wait till Jesus is here, you know, everybody gets their comeuppance, you know. Go get him, Jesus, right? Is sometimes how we think about it. But it is supposed to be affecting us right now. We're not, God doesn't want us just holding our breath till that happens. And sometimes it's tempting to fall into that pattern of just thinking, you know, it's horrible right now and just just can't wait till it all comes to an end. No, think right, think biblically. Jesus is my king. Jesus is king of kings. He's king of the heathens, whether they recognize him or not. So the question then is, what is the significance of Jesus being the God-man, his incarnation, when it comes to his reigning as king? Just a couple of applications for us to walk away with this morning. Number one, he fulfills the Davidic covenant. As coming through the line of David. God wonderfully gives us a number of covenants in the Old Testament. By the way, anyone that tells you, don't bother reading the Old Testament, just focus on the New Testament. You will not appreciate and understand the New Testament unless you are a student of the Old Testament. Okay? And by the way, when, when, when the book of Acts is written, which is in our New Testament... And you read about all that ministry that's going on and the preaching of Paul and Peter and Silas and Barnabas, you know, and Apollos. What are they preaching out of? Preaching out of the Old Testament, right? The gospel is there. Jesus on the road to Emmaus used the Old Testament to show everything about himself beginning at Moses and in all the prophets. And so it's fun and exciting to go back to a passage like second samuel let's flip back there for just a moment second samuel chapter seven and in this passage nestled in all the issues of a disappointing king such as david you see god saying you know what david you may not be faithful and some of your successors, all of your successors, will not be faithful. But I'm going to make a unilateral covenant, meaning God says, I, "This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it." And, and there's no stopping this from happening. Second Samuel chapter seven, and let's, let's drop in at verse 12, where a paragraph begins. Well, actually, at the end of verse 11, he says, The Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. So there's some an encouragement that's going on here. And then he talks about the building, the lineage of the house of David. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. You're going to die, David. You know, your, your, your reign is, is terminal. What's going to happen then? I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now all of a sudden we have a pronoun. He. Well, is he talking about his son Solomon? Can't be. Why? Because the very end of verse 13 says that the kingdom would be one that lasts how long? Forever. All the other earthly kings, their reign had an end to it. But there is coming one, Jesus Christ, that will reign forever. And he goes on in verse 14 to say, I will be his father and he shall be my son. This is God speaking. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So intermingled in all this, he's talking about the other kings that are going to fail. But he comes back to it and says, but fear not. Because the first thing I told you and the last thing I told you is, I'm going to establish the Davidic kingdom, not because of someone that comes really through your male heirs, but comes from the Holy Spirit inseminating Mary someday. But that's why the Gospels start out in in Matthew with showing the lineage of Jesus Christ being of the line of David. And then it also carries through Mary as well. And so what a wonderful truth to say, yes, Jesus was the fulfillment, the God-man, of this promise that God made to a disappointed and disappointing king and all of his other heirs. But God says, but I said I'm going to have a kingdom that lasts forever, and it's going to happen, and it's going to be because of my son, not because of your son. Oh, what a merciful, long-suffering God we have, folks. Something else we learn is that Jesus, as the God-man king, is a benevolent ruler understanding his subjects. We could tie this back to last Sunday's message. I mean, you think about it. When you get someone that's in a role of absolute power, it can go to their heads, and they can be more about themselves. But Jesus said when he came, he says, you know what, I didn't come to be ministered unto. to have a bunch of subjects around me that are going to be you know, fanning me with palm leaves, and maidens bringing me, you know, trays of fruit and waiting on me. And you know, if someone says, "Hey, I've got a dispute," and it's like I can't be bothered right now, he says, "No, that isn't the kind of of king, the kind of person that Jesus is. I didn't come to be ministered unto, but to minister. I'm the one doing the ministering. Why? Because." He looked out on the multitudes over and over again, and he was moved with what? Compassion. Isn't that who you want to be, your king? That really cares, even to the sacrifice of himself. I mean, how many times do we see our Lord, you know, ministering to exhaustion? And even when he tries to get a little away time for his own spiritual spiritual edification, sometimes it was interrupted, right? You know, I mean, he's asleep in a boat, you know. Master, we perish, you know. And they could have just said, we're not going to perish. I mean, the son of God's down there. If we're with him, we're okay. So bring on the storm, right? Well, let's ride it out. Oh, come. Save, you know, They didn't get it. Hey, we don't get it often. We stop and we, for, we forget in our, our catastrophes. Our little tornadoes of problems. And we're thinking, Oh, Lord, what's going on here? You know what? I am His and He is mine. I'm okay. You know, because I have a sovereign, I have a king of my life who gets me and cares for me actually better than I care for myself, truly. He is the head of the nations in the millennial kingdom. I mean, again, all the nations, some are handling life a little bit better than others, but often as we try to rate the nations in our mind right now, countries, we would say, you know, you know yeah, I'm certainly glad I don't live in that nation. I mean, how oppressive is that? I mean, it's, a, it's communistic. They're oppressing religion. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't even be a public church Without the fear of uh, of being arrested as a pastor or even someone going there, so you have to meet in secret oh, I'd hate to live there, you know, and yet, if you get the reports from there, you find out those believers in that state of of persecution have sometimes a purer passion for the Lord than we who are all overwhelmed with our capitalism and our materialism that comes along with it sometimes now i'm not criticizing capitalism as an as a good form of economics i'm just saying as we as flawed human beings we don't do very well with it because we love this world and we love the stuff in it and we you know the the blessings we often begin to pervert them God gives us something nice, and all of a sudden, we've made it an idol in our lives. And that's why some Christians in other parts of the world look at us and say, I don't envy the Americans. You know, I'm glad. I've heard reports from missionaries that would say, oh, yeah. You know, they, they say it would be much harder for me to live passionately for the Lord in America than it is right where I am. Wrap your mind around that, folks. But that's the truth. The truth of the matter is, Whatever nation you're talking about there's coming a day when Jesus will be king of all of those nations. Christ's kingship only connects with us if we are first connected with his role as savior and as our great high priest. Kind of connecting this all together, right? Cuz we've talked about the importance of him being our savior. If Friend, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, if you've not been born again, if you've not turned from your own good works as an effort to get into heaven and said, I trust in the merits, the work of Jesus Christ alone on the cross, then friend, you're not going to be embracing the concept of Jesus being king. This only works that way. And high priest, oh, I've got a mediator with God the Father into the very presence of heaven because Jesus is at the right hand. And so I embrace both of those things and therefore I'm really excited about the concept of Jesus being my king. But here in this text, it's all about the motivation for a servant of God to be faithfully carrying out one's role as a subject of the king. And that's why Paul's bringing that here. And so again... Look at what he says in verse 15. He calls him, and he's talking about Jesus, right? The only potentate. And he says, think of him as your backer. The one who has you, is protecting you. Potentate is in the, in the Greek, comes from or is closely related to another word, which is the word for power. And that word for power, and sometimes you've heard this, the Greek word is dunamis. And, of course, we name dynamite after that, of course, because of its explosive power. So sometimes that helps us to relate about that. Well, we're not worried about an explosion taking, but, but I want you to think about force as power as opposed to authority. There's a different word in Greek. For that word, for power that has the idea of authority. And so, yes, he is our authority. We'll see that. That's rooted in king of kings. But also see him as potentate. In other words, whatever you've got, whatever problem you might face, I've got the power. I've got the enablement. You know, you can have all the authority in the world as a earthly king. But if your subjects are attacked and you don't have an arsenal, you don't have the strength. What are you going to do, right? You, the, the, the claims and the promises of the king to say, I've got your back. But yeah, well, where are the armies? Where's the artillery, right? He says, No. Your potentate, your backer, your supporter, he's Jesus Christ. That's why 1 John 4 4 tells us as an encouraging thought, Ye are of God, little children. You're, you're subjects of God the Father and have overcome them talking about those in the world. When you feel assaulted, when you feel that they're coming at you, you're really an overcomer. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He is your Jesus Christ is your potentate. He has that power, he has that strength. They can't match that no matter what they can throw at you. They may scoff. They may exclude They may condescend. All those different things, right? They may throw zoning restrictions someday at places of worship. They can't really get at the nucleus of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Because why? Jesus Christ as our king is our potentate. That's what he's trying to charge Timothy with. Success in serving Christ may look different than serving other rulers it's all about results when it comes to other rulers in other words kings are interested did you do what i told you to do but but christ is mostly concerned with the results inside of you that's why paul said to the corinthian church in first corinthians 4 2 moreover it's required in stewards that's us as christians stewards of the gospel it's required of stewards what that a man be found faithful. You know what that applies to my heart? As I think about it, I think, you know, my job, my duty before God is to faithfully expound the Word of God passionately, filled with the Spirit. But you know what? It's not my job to change your heart as the listener. I want that to happen. You know, I'm, I'm not apathetic about that at all. That's in my prayers and that's in my mind. But ultimately, I know that, as I've said to some people, you know, you can't as a Christian caring about another individual. You can't grab them and drag them into obedient living. You can't drag a lost person into salvation. Right. We wish we could sometimes. Right. Because we care about them and we're thinking they don't get it. They don't realize this, but that's not my job, and we need to understand that, and so it's like, that's where I I, I don't measure, am I success as a Christian? Is God happy with me as a believer? Well, have I been faithful, right? That's my job. Paul goes on to charge Timothy to exhort the rich. We didn't read these verses, but look down 17 and 18 so you can see. He's like, now, Timothy, I've charged you. You've got the mindset of serving King Jesus. He's your potentate. Now, take it to the people. Number one, you've got some people who have material blessings. They have resources. They may not even consider themselves rich, but they've got stuff. And if they have stuff, they're rich. The question is, what are they doing with their resources? Here's what I want you to do. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Now, Timothy might be thinking, that's a tough crowd. You know? I don't know if I want to go there. But thankfully, Timothy's already heard. But Timothy... there There might not be one person that starts tithing in your congregation as a result of you getting up and giving some great messages on stewardship and giving like you should. And there might be nothing wrong with your messages. You might have delivered them perfectly. But were you faithful? Ah, you were. Why were you faithful? Because you were serving King Jesus. And you know what? We need to charge other people to respond rightly to King Jesus. If Timothy faithfully charges them, then he's done what King Jesus wants. He's not ultimately responsible for the obedience of his hearers. In the ending, it's kind of like the farmer. Farmer's responsible for planting. Well, we might even start off with the tilling of the ground, right? Till the ground. Then you come along and you put the seed in. Then you come along and you irrigate. Well, some plant and some water... But you know where the the duty and the ability of the farmer stops? Right there, pretty much, because the next thing that needs to happen is called germination. That seed needs to sprout. And I don't care how talented you are, only God makes that happen. He's embedded it into the seed. And you know what? We need to have the same mindset. You've got friends. You've got family members, right? And I charge you, as Paul's charging Timothy, That as you look at them and as you minister to them, do it for King Jesus. He is your potentate. He is your king. But he's also the one that stops where your faithfulness ends and says, I'll take it from here. One more passage I'd like you to see in Revelation chapter 17. Because this gives us, we really can't, stop just there without looking at the future king. And Revelation chapter 17 in verse 14 and this is going to be picked up in verse chapter 19 as well. He's talking about here the nations and it's it's done through a a prophetic sight that John sees and describes as this beast that has in verse 12 10 horns and those 10 horns represent the divisions of the, the world's nations at the time that this happens. So this is still future for us. It hasn't happened yet. And it says in verse 12 that those ten horns are ten kings, earthly kings, right? And verse 13 says, Revelation seventeen thirteen: they have one mind and they shall give their power and strength unto the beast, the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is driven by Satan. And it says in verse 14, These shall make war with the Lamb, capital L, talking about the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And the Lamb shall what? Overcome them. Praise God. Why will he overcome them? Because he is Lord of lords and what? King of kings. And then the same event where that's looking at it in a vision and characterized to the beast, now in more of a chronology we find the timeline mentioned in Revelation 19 and verse 16, and we see what we call the Battle of Armageddon. And the nations are coming after Israel, and it doesn't look very promising at this point. And at this point in Revelation 19, and let's just look at... Um, well, let, let's start at verse eleven. I'm going to read this rapidly because it, it, you, you're going to see the beauty of who this describes here. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge the judge and make war. His eyes were as flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself will be told in just a second what it is. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called. The Word of God. Backtrack to John 1. We know that he's talking about Jesus Christ. Verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Those are believers that have been raptured up and saints that have died and gone before us. They're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Back to Jesus. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. And with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture, his outer garment, and on his thigh, his inner garment, a name written, what is it? King of kings and Lord of lords, as one commentator put it. Why is it both places? Because as he's coming and the wind is blowing, you want to be able to see it not on just his garment, but on his inner garment as well. The king is coming and he comes to the rescue and on it goes from here. And we find out that he takes the, the, the beast and the, and the false prophet and cast them into the lake of fire. And by the end of the chapter, verse 21, you see that there's this carnage. And, and how are they dealt with? It's all from just the sword out of the mouth of Jesus, just his words, just what he says. That's all he has to do is speak. My mind goes back to the Garden of Gethsemane, and when the Romans come to him, they say, Art thou Jesus of Nazareth, and I am he, and they all fall down, right? Just by him speaking it. Folks, this is the impressive coming of Christ to earth. Not just to become king at that moment, but to set up his earthly reign in a very visible way for a thousand years. A king who is king right now. A king who is king who came as a small baby as the God man and says to us through the book of Timothy I charge you don't lose sight of Jesus being your king of him being your potentate. There's much work to be done. There's much strength in the gospel. I empower you. I authorize you. All I ask you to do is be faithful. May God help us to be faithful to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the exhortation that we receive from your spirit today. Lord, I ask that you would now drive these truths home to our hearts. May we be encouraged. May we be challenged. May we be charged. May we be excited about this. Say, I'm not just out here all alone. I am serving my king. I know what my duty is. I know what I'm responsible for. I I don't need to see myself as a failure or success based upon far-reaching results that really fall into God's spectrum of control and not my own. So whatever my role is in the kingdom's sake, Father, help me to serve you and to rejoice that you are my ruler and my sovereign. May we pray this and live this in our hearts, dear Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.